Welcome everyone to the Australian Bitcoin podcast. I'm Justin, your host, and I'm joined today by Jeremy from hardblock.com.au, Australia's first and oldest Bitcoin only exchange. How's it going, Jeremy? Pretty good, Justin. How are you? Yeah, can't complain. So today's episode, we're going to focus on node implementations. We'll start with what is a Bitcoin node and then talk more about the kind of implementations that people could use as either beginner or more into intermediate, as well as things like the reasons for running a node, how much it might cost, um, as well as what's the time commitment that you can expect to take to set one up. So I've, I've got some points that I'll make sure that we hit on as we go through to keep this as instructional as possible. But just firstly, could we open up casually and just talk about like what, what is a node? So like in your mind, conceptually, how do you, yeah, how do you make sense of a node? I guess for me, you know, the node is Bitcoin. It's like the, the Bitcoin ecosystem, which is to me, it's kind of like a, a virus that it's out there that can't be shut down. And the, the more nodes there are, the more um, powerful and resilient the Bitcoin network is. So mm. essentially the node aside from the mining part of it the node is bitcoin and the node is what stores the ledger it enforces the rules and it helps new nodes join the network and there's obviously a lot of benefits you know from a privacy perspective and so on but to me each node is just it is bitcoin it is the ecosystem that is bitcoin yeah that, that makes the most sense like we talk about bitcoin as being peer-to-peer and I think when I first got into Bitcoin, I thought that meant like me and you, like as humans, we are the peers in the network. And that is true. And that is definitely part of it. But I think the very technical understanding is that the nodes are the peers in the network. Without those nodes, they're essentially, well, there is no network. It's the nodes that store the ledger. It's the nodes that communicate with each other about things like transactions. Um, it's the nodes that even give your wallet the functions that make your wallet useful, which is, you know, being able to see when you receive Bitcoin, being able to broadcast it out, being able to monitor your transaction balances. So it's like the nodes are yeah, the most integral part. It's the uh, it's the backbone of the network. In fact, it is the network if you just want to put it that way. Yeah, definitely. And like the term node is kind of a technical term that relating to like a network. If you think about, say, like a supply chain network, like an airport, uh, airline sort of network, mm. there are these kind of hub and spoke models, which is very centralized. Um, but the Bitcoin network is all these peers or nodes, but there's no actual central point. That's the part that makes it decentralized. So that the nodes, the term node is is actually, you know, quite an important sort of network concept. The, the key point being that there isn't any central node they're all kind of learning and, and downloading transactions from each other. Exactly, unless you're on Ethereum and then yes. uh, <laughs> a lot of it's on Amazon Web Services, right. which is highly centralized. Yeah. But that, I think that's a good point because traditionally when people think about, um, say, using something on the internet, like downloading something from the internet, like a file, it is from a central server. Maybe there's multiple central servers like mirrors, but essentially it's grossly different to the way that Bitcoin operates in the sense that, like you said, there is no central server, there's multiple servers. Something that some users might be more familiar with is torrenting. So the BitTorrent protocol is a decentralized node network as well, in that you're not, say if you go to download a file, traditionally you're just getting it from one website, one server, maybe a few mirrors. If you download it through BitTorrent, you're actually getting it from potentially millions of users all throughout the world that all hold that file or at least parts of that file and you're not downloading it from just one source you'll normally see if you're running like a BitTorrent client it'll say something like connected to 10 of 10 nodes or 100 of 100 nodes or whatever it might be it's because each of the people that are downloading and uploading are essentially a node in the network so anyone who's familiar with torrenting will probably understand this idea of a decentralized node-based you know peer-to-peer -peer network pretty easily just by seeing it as 
the way that BitTorrent works, except what you're doing is you're storing a ledger. That's the file that you're storing rather than a whatever it is you might be downloading on BitTorrent, like a movie or music or you know image files or a game or whatever. On Bitcoin, it's the ledger that you're downloading and sharing with other peers, but essentially works in a similar fashion. Yeah, I think <clears throat> Bitcoin is like a, it's a very different thing to get your head around compared to like, you know, the banking system we're coming from, for mm. example. And I think maybe the best way to think about it is if there were no nodes, there would be no Bitcoin. So we're all kind of assuming that someone is going to run a node. Yeah. Um, and so that's why it is actually really important for as many people to run that node as possible. So we're not relying on someone else to do that because the Bitcoin that we all own is just a record in a blockchain. And that, black, that blockchain is recorded in, in nodes. So I think there's about 50,000 nodes at the moment. Um, Luke Dash Jr. has this site that, that shows the, the correct number of nodes, which is like a lot, but it's not a crazy amount considering mm. how many people there are. So yeah, definitely the more nodes that we can get running, the better it is for everyone. Absolutely. And I seem to recall that number's been up to as high as 150,000. But more recently, you're right, it's closer to 50. But then I guess the caveat to that is that some or a lot of the nodes are relatively private in the sense that they function as a part of the network, but it's not that easy to see, you know, in aggregate how many there are. So 50,000 is probably a, an underestimate, mm. which is good because yeah. that, that's a big number, but it doesn't seem that crazy of a number when we're talking about 8 billion people in the world. But yeah, the, the higher it goes, usually the better it is for personal security, especially because one point that you might have picked up from what we've just said there is that uh, the ledger, the Bitcoin ledger is stored on the node, your node, say if you run one and, and other people's nodes, if they run one too. But what's also stored there, which is very important, is the consensus rules. So the consensus rules of Bitcoin are things like there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Um, you can't spend an UTXO uh, or like an output from a previous transaction. You can't spend that if it's already been spent. Um, you can only spend transaction that you control the keys to. So those sort of consensus rules are really important for each node to hold because it means that they can actually make sure that people are using the blockchain honestly, truthfully, you know, in line with the rules, essentially. And if they're not, then say a node will reject a transaction um, or reject a whole block full of transactions because perhaps it's not complying to those consensus rules. So basically being able to say, you know, you're self-sovereign, um, or you hold your own Bitcoin basically means you have to run your own node because then you get to have those rules there, have your own version of the ledger there, the most up-to-date one, um, and ensure that all other parties are playing by the same rules as you. So I just wanted to come back to another point that I mentioned there, which is really important, and it's that uh, your node is what makes your wallet function. You know, if you wanted to look at this as a simple image, although it's hard to describe an image in words, you would have your wallet, so the, the software on your phone or your desktop, and that then connects to a node. That node connects to a bunch of other nodes, and that's the Bitcoin network. But if you think about it, your wallet's not that important in the grand scheme of the whole functionality of things. It's the node that's really important. So it's always useful to recognize when you're using a wallet, you're connecting to a node somewhere. It just might not be your own node if you're not running a node yourself, uh, which means you're trusting someone else to run a node for your wallet. This is probably a good point to talk a bit about the benefits of running a node. Usually it does come down to things like privacy. So if you are pointing towards someone else's node, they get to track things like your IP address, which would have you know your geolocation, for example, if you're not using something that's privacy maintaining like a VPN. Um, they would see things like your past, and potentially all future transactions, and they would see your Bitcoin balance. 
hence the benefit of running your own node, you get to keep all that information yourself. Yeah, and I think one of the other, to me, one of the biggest benefits of running a node is it, it's, I think, the best way to learn about Bitcoin mm. and to really understand it. And it was the, running a node was the thing that made me focus on Bitcoin other than, you know, outside of the other altcoins. Um, because as soon as you do that, you realize like, A, how, you know, easy it is to do, like in terms of computer resources, uh, and also the software is free, but also, how poorly designed all of the other altcoins are because you can't actually just run a node yourself especially some of the faster ones it's, it's literally not possible on consumer hardware to run your own node on that software and it makes you very quickly realize that actually only bitcoin is the is the one that's going to be strong enough to um resist those state level attacks so yeah running a node um it, it i think for a lot of people coming in or thinking mm, okay that's kind of a lot of inconvenience for a little bit of privacy but when you realize that actually um, this is going to help you understand Bitcoin and Bitcoin is this thing that is going to be resistant to, for example, um, you know, Canadian bank um, sanctioning and Russian bank sanctioning. Mm. Then you think, well, actually, this little piece of software is incredibly powerful and, and getting to know it is, is something that I think everyone should try and do. Definitely. It gives you a, a more of an appreciation of the engineering elegance that's gone into Bitcoin. And also, if you ever do dabble with other shitcoins, especially trying to run your own node and be self-sovereign in that way, it, people will quickly discover that Bitcoin, it is most possible to do that for, but other altcoins, usually impossible to do. It's good maybe just to talk about um, a technical aspect here. So a node is probably the best way to see it is as a device, like a computer or a small single board computer, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be run on, if anyone's familiar with doing like a virtual machine or running something on like a virtual private server, that's possible too. So I guess in, in a essence, you could say a node is a piece of software, but often enough, most users will be running it on a device, which is like an old laptop uh, or maybe your existing laptop, or again, something like a single board computer. So it's just good to kind of visualize that physically um, a node will often be something that you have in a device running in your home somewhere. It's also good just to clarify quickly that a Bitcoin node is not a Bitcoin miner. So a Bitcoin miner is something quite separate. When we talk about Bitcoin nodes and being a device, you can run a Bitcoin node on, on most pretty old devices. We'll get to in a little bit what the, the system requirements often are. But it's just useful to know that a node can be run on something relatively basic. But a Bitcoin miner, on the other hand, is an expensive piece of hardware that is really only designed to do one thing, and that's to run a hashing algorithm um, to try to mine the next Bitcoin block. And miners do that so they can be rewarded with more Bitcoin. Not all miners are nodes, though. Miners usually point towards a node where they get the information from. So it's just good to clarify that when you're running a node, you're not mining Bitcoin, you're not getting rewarded for it. The main reward is that you get to be the controller of your own keys, you get to be the controller of your own balance. Bitcoin mining, something slightly different. In terms of why people should run a node, we probably already hit on those main points in terms of uh, privacy and security, but there's usually a lot of extra functionality that you get with a node that you wouldn't otherwise, and you would need to then rely on someone else. So some of the cool stuff that's usually built into nodes are things like having a block explorer. So you might be familiar with the idea of if you want to check on a transaction, you might go to mempool space, and you use their block explorer, which means you type in a transaction hash or you even type in the receiving address that you expect the funds to be transferred to. And then you can look and you can see when was it submitted, how many confirmations does it have, all that sort of detail. If you're using Mempool Spaces Block Explorer, you're actually using their node. If you use blockchair.org or .com, I can't remember which one it is, they're probably at both domains, but if you're using that, you're using their node. 
So most node implementations will have a block explorer built into it, which you can use and query the blockchain yourself. A lot of nodes also are, firstly, they're on-chain usually, so they're Bitcoin base layer, but a lot of nodes are now implementing things like Lightning. So you can have Lightning channels, which you manage, rather than using Lightning in a custodial way. There's also, also things like being able to view the mempool, so to see how many transactions are still waiting to be mined, as well as what the likely fee should be to get your next transaction mined in, say, the next block or the next 10 blocks or the next 100 blocks. Again, if you're using another mempool viewer, you're using their node. Whereas if you use your own node, you often have the option to implement something like a mempool viewer. There's some other cool stuff that often comes with nodes that it really depends on the type of node that you set up. And we'll get into some examples uh, a little bit later, but just one of the things that I find pretty cool is uh, if you get into Bitcoin privacy on chain, some nodes have things like uh, coin join implementations, which make that process much easier and much more hands-off to be able to do. And they even have things like calculators that let you calculate the anon set of your transactions, um, what kind of entropy or what kind of... Uh, different ways the transaction could be interpreted as to make it a little bit more private on chain. So again, a node will often have all these kind of features. I'm curious, Jeremy, because you've experimented a bit with setting up an umbral, and yeah. that is a, is a Bitcoin node, it's a Lightning node, but it's a bunch of other things too. Like what, what other sort of features do they have? Um, so the umbral was really good in theory, and it does have things like um, PyHole, which you can use to set up, um, like prevent ads in your whole network in your house. Mm. Um, and in theory, it's got like one-click mempool space and lightning nodes and so on. But in practice, it just didn't really work. So um, I've ended up actually just going back to loading um, Bitcoin Core onto a Raspberry Pi directly. So yeah, I think <clears throat> the other people are trying it. There's another one um, that uh, uh, runs Citadel that's basically forked Umbral and making their own version of it. Um, so I think ideally that will be something that in future is more stable and is easy to use because you know even though it's probably not as good as running it yourself with all your own software if it allows someone who wasn't going to run a node to run a node then i think that's a, a net benefit um but yeah my experience with umbral even though it was very easy to get started it crashed a few times in um syncing the um i, I did get the the blockchain synced but it crashed probably four times in that process mm. um and then all the stuff that it looked like it could do it didn't actually do when you clicked it. <laughs> so Gotcha, yeah. Now, look, that's my understanding of Umbrella so far too, is that they've packed a lot of stuff in there. And depending on your hardware setup, you can sometimes get it to run pretty well. But because there are so many variables, there is, there is more troubleshooting that's usually required and, and more problems that usually occur. And I think sometimes a criticism from more privacy or security conscious projects is that the more stuff you add, the more attack vectors there are, and the more the more those things complicate, like it becomes a multiple. You know, if you have two different bits of software, that's far less complicated than having, say, four, where you start to exponentially increase the amount of attack vectors that could be. And of course, if you have 12 bits of software or 20 bits of software, it starts to become unruly to troubleshoot problems, but also to make sure that you have all vulnerabilities um, patched. Having said that, you know, it really depends on your threat uh, model. You know, something like that might not matter too much. You might not have anything on there that's uh, going to ruin your life if you have it lost. And it's nice to have a bit of a tinker. They've got yep. things like cloud storage, password managers, um, a, a whole plethora of things that become help you become a self-sovereign person. And in the fullness of time, if they can, they can iron out that, and if competitors like uh, Citadel can do the same thing, all of a sudden we've got this you know, beautiful node implementation that does a whole lot of everything apart from just being a Bitcoin node. Yeah, but I mean, essentially what it's just doing is taking that free software and um, 
making it one click. Mm. But what I've sort of realized, and you know, I've like I'm a long-time Windows user that have just come to Linux. And so it's it's a quite a big learning curve for me. But once you've kind of installed one software, doing the second one is easier mm. and the third one is easier again. Whereas if you do something like Umbral, it's pretty easy to get going, but you haven't really learned anything. And if it breaks, you've got nothing you can, it's very difficult to fix it or I couldn't get to work. True. Whereas if you actually just go through the hard way initially, then you have it much more customizable. Um, it's probably more efficient in terms of OS, you know, RAM usage and so on. Um, and then you've got the skills. So the next time you want to go, like there's there's very cool stuff on Umbral, like there's a um, AI um, photo organizer that's open source, um, kind of like equivalent of Google Photos, the way it does that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of stuff you can do and, and you realize how kind of massive this um, uh, network is or like this opportunity to become self-sovereign. Um, but yeah, if you just kind of go the slightly harder route and just go, I'm going to install Bitcoin Core first and then I'll install maybe something else like Pi-hole, you realize that it's not as... Yeah, once you follow the steps, it is doable. Absolutely. And it's it's a learning process too. Yep. I, I don't think anyone should expect to be able to just very quickly set up a node the first time they do it and know exactly what's happening and what they're doing. It'll be, you know, a matter of just following the instructions, troubleshooting where things go wrong. But then after the first, second and, and maybe third time, if it gets to that, it does become a much simpler process. You understand what's happening and you can troubleshoot much better and you understand Bitcoin at a much deeper level. So it's probably good to talk about costs. Obviously, everything, it depends. <laughs> depends on whether you're buying one of the plug and play type node options where you literally just have it delivered to your house, you plug it in, you turn it on and it starts to sync the Bitcoin blockchain and it's got everything already uh, installed on there that needs to be. That's obviously not going to take you very long, but it's going to cost you a little bit more. And some of those implementations can range anywhere from about 500 up to $1,000. With inflation, I imagine that will be up a little bit more in the next you know, six to 12 months. The other option that a lot of people take is uh, the more DIY approach. So that's either just repurposing something like an old laptop or it's buying something like a single board computer like a Raspberry Pi or an Odroid N2. And the cost of that can usually be up to about $400, usually a little bit less. I reckon you could get it less. Yeah, yeah. because it, it depends on whether you get an SSD for your hard drive or a HDD. SSD is generally better, it's been generally faster, but at the same time, you can have it running on a, on a hard disk drive as well, which saves you quite a bit of money. Uh, it also depends on how much RAM you want. Four gigabytes is usually enough, but some of those Raspberry Pis and Odroids are now coming up with eight gigabytes, which is better if you're going to have more things on that node implementation, but also not totally necessary. So there's ways to get a node for probably around 200 or 250 um, and upwards of about 400 for a more kind of premium DIY type node. I was just going to say, because I've only, oh, I'm about to sync my node possibly today or tomorrow. And uh, I guess what I've learned is that you do need a case that can deal with the heat of mm. the um, Raspberry Pi. And it works much better with an S. I tried with a um, whatever you call it, the old spinning hard drive. HDD, yeah. Because I have one at home just sitting there that I wasn't using. And it was like, you could feel it vibrating. It was so hot and it just gave up. Like it couldn't, it didn't work. Um, so I got the SSD, it was about $150. But those will become cheaper. And interestingly, you can actually get a one terabyte uh, micro SD card, mm. which is what the Raspberry Pi uses for its OS. Yeah. So by the time you buy a ten, like a, an SD card for 10 bucks, it's actually only 40 bucks more to go straight to a, micro SD card that's two terabytes. It's a very compact setup if you do it that way. And I think as time goes on, as storage becomes cheaper and you get a larger amount of storage, some of what we're talking about here, I would imagine the price of nodes to decrease over time and the ease of installing it in the first place 
to and, and their efficiency in terms of the amount of power and processing and RAM that they use, that will keep improving over time too. So what we're talking about now is probably the, the worst it'll get with nodes, yeah. <laughs> even though it's yeah. been improving over time, of course, but we're probably at a point where it's going to keep getting easier and cheaper from this point with the way technology and um, these implementations are going. Definitely. So the other things to keep in mind in terms of cost is the energy cost and the data. So energy cost is because your node, generally speaking, is always turned on. You don't have to, you can switch your node off and then every time you wanna use your wallet, put your node back on, it'll then have to catch up and sync the blocks that have um, occurred while the node was offline. And then you can use your wallet completely. And look, it really depends on how long you have your node turned off for in terms of how long that might take every time you turn it on to use it. But I guess the point being here is that by keeping your node switched on all the time, ideally, you're constantly using energy. And really that depends on the kind of device you're using. If you're using an old laptop or say a desktop computer, that's going to use far more energy being on all the time compared to say a single board computer, um, which uses, look, I'm not even gonna try to make it up because I had a number in my head there, but I'm not sure if I can verify that. But single board computers use up to sometimes like 10 times less than a normal laptop or, uh, or desktop computer. So keep that in mind, I guess, when choosing what sort of device to run it on. It's certainly a lot less, but if you, I mean, most people are using a computer a fair bit anyway, mm. right? Bitcoin Core is an amazingly efficient, like when it's, when it's syncing, it does take a lot of computer resources, but once it's synced, it's using like 300 meg of RAM. Like it's really not, it shouldn't be a big um, drain on a modern computer. So if you just want to get started and you've got a computer you're using all day for work and you've got the internet connection and the hardware, the hard drive available, realistically, that's not going to get add anything to your electricity cost if you're only using it when the computer was on anyway. That's true. And, and you are right. That's the culture, isn't it? Where most people will just have the computer on all the time. Yep. That's the same as mine. Yeah. The other point, and you touched on that just there as well, is the uh, the data cost. Yep. So when you first set up a Bitcoin node, it needs to sync the entire Bitcoin blockchain and needs to not just download it, but it also verifies it, which takes quite a while uh, because that's very hardware intensive. So it can sometimes take up to about two weeks to sync the node initially. And the data that you use during that time is usually around, you download about 360 gigabytes. Now there are ways to run nodes in what's called like a pruned node fashion, where you only hold, um, say, a much smaller amount of the blockchain, say the ones that just relate to your wallet in particular, that there's less security and, and privacy with that. There are some trade-offs, um, but it can be more convenient um, if that data is an issue for you in terms of downloading. But for the most part, most internet like NBN and uh, broadband have either unlimited plans or incredibly high monthly data allowances where downloading 360 gigabytes to begin with to sync the blockchain isn't really that out of the question for most people's plans nowadays. Uh, and then after that point, it's actually a far bit less. Uh, it ends up being around, um, I've heard up to around 60 gigabytes up and, and 15 gigabytes download um, per month or two after that, if your node is always on. Um, but I've seen figures that are far less than that as well. So if that sounds doable on your plan, um, you might as well just run a full node. If it sounds too much, you can um, explore the idea of a pruned node, which most nodes give that option as you're setting it up. And if you have a satellite dish, you can actually download the, the node data from uh, Blockstream satellites. That's for true. Free. Exactly. Yeah, that's. Uh, I saw a very recent YouTube video by Dennis Porter that talked about how Bitcoin can work even though uh, the internet might be shut down because of things like satellites and that Blockstream satellite in particular, as well as things like mesh networks. Um, that's probably a tangent that we don't need to go into now, no. but that's very useful if that sounds interesting. Check out Dennis Porter's recent video. 
Yeah, but realistically, you need an unlimited internet plan. That would be yeah. best, for yeah. sure. Yep. And in terms of system spec, you would want something that has at least one gigabyte of RAM, at least one terabyte of either, again, a solid straight state drive, which is called an SSD, or a hard disk drive, which is called a HDD, SSD being the better one. And you could get away with running less than those two specs if you're running a prune node, but for the most part, you want those specs at least on the device that you're running. Um, luckily, most single board computers, again, have either four or eight gigabytes of RAM. Most laptops, the same if it was built anywhere in the last 10 or so years. So for the most part, repurposing an old device, good way to do it. So it's good to talk about some examples of nodes that people could run. I think the first one that most people should experiment with, or at least consider, is Bitcoin Core. It is the original node implementation. It is the node implementation that all other nodes are built around or built off of. And to me, it's probably the most user-friendly initial setup because you can just, whatever device that you're listening you know, to, to this podcast on, if it's a desktop or a laptop device, you can actually start setting up Bitcoin Core node on that. Um, it has a wallet attached to it as well. Uh, it's free open source software, so you know it's been verified and audited. And it has a lot of good just basic features. Um, it doesn't have things like lightning network capability or coin join functionality, um, or even things like a block explorer or a mempool viewer, which I, I mentioned a bit earlier as potential features. But it, it's enough to get you going to understand the whole process of setting up a node, syncing a node, and then having it linked to a wallet. And any comments about Bitcoin Core? Because I know you and I both set one of those up before. And Yeah, so that's the only one I've used. I, um... I have set it up in Windows previously. And so if you do try to do that, I think you're going to have to go in as an administrator. Mm. For some reason, I think Windows must be able to tell that it's, you know, anti-establishment software. And <laughs> That's right. It doesn't let you do it in the normal kind of where, you know, your normal account. So, mm. But once you do run it as an administrator, it's pretty much like you double click it. You just have to tell it where to put the, um, the blockchain. So you just make sure it's in the drive that has all the space. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, um, I found it pretty good. I guess just from a... Um, maybe for clarification, because this wasn't obvious to me before. So essentially, is it fair to say that the other implementations, like say Samurai, for example, they've just taken Bitcoin Core and then added other functionality to it? Is that what they're doing? Exactly. Yes, yep. that's right. Yep. And pretty much from my understanding of all the prominent node projects, that is exactly how it works. You, you might find an obscure node project that is building their own node, but there is a benefit to everyone using a similar protocol or a similar implementation yeah. like Bitcoin Core. That way, whenever Bitcoin Core has upgrades, um, the rest of it's a sort of downstream of that rather than having to be a, a parallel separate upgrade to a different type of core implementation. Yeah, but essentially all of these nodes, whether it's Bitcoin Core or another one, they're all interoperable with the Bitcoin network. Yes, that's correct, exactly. Probably a point to touch on is whenever downloading and then installing node software, whether it's Bitcoin Core or whether it's one of the other uh, tangent projects, is to try to verify the download. Most people say that and then don't do it because it is a bit of a clunky process. But most, most places you'll download things from now try to give instructions about how to do that, how they have uh, signed either the download file or they've included the hash of the download file and then they've signed that hash so you know that that's the, that's the real hash signed by the real person. It is beyond probably the scope of this podcast to talk about step-by-step -step how to do that. So I would say always check wherever you're downloading from how you're meant to verify that download. But just conceptually, what's usually happening with verifying downloads is that there's a thing called um, PGP privacy or pretty good privacy where 
similar to with uh, how Bitcoin works, say a developer has a private key that only they know, but of course they have a, a public key that's available too that can be used by other users to say send them encrypted messages that can only be decrypted with their private key. What this private public key pair also enables them to do is say if they develop a piece of software like Bitcoin Core, they can then sign either the software itself uh, with their private key or they can say hash, which gives you a, uh, a 64 digit output. Um, like a, if someone's ever seen like a, a hash output before from say a transaction hash from the Bitcoin um, transaction, that's what a hash is. It's like taking any amount of data, running it through a hash algorithm, then giving you this sort of fixed string output. And essentially they would hash the download, which would give them a very, very unique, you know, uh, it can't be cheated or, or replicated in any way um, string. And then they would sign that string. And so you would then download the file, you would check their signature to say, okay, yes, they've definitely signed this um, string. And now I'm going to run the hash of the download itself and check that those two strings, those two hashes match. Now, look, even just explaining that, I'm realizing it makes sense to me, but I know that that's a, a lot of confusing kind of new concepts. So what I will say is that all you're doing is you're trying to verify that the person you think you're downloading this from is the person that you're actually downloading it from and is the person that actually developed the software and that the software hasn't been changed. That's conceptually what you're doing. But the first 10 times, 20 times you do it, you will just be following the step-by-step -step instructions listed on, say, the Bitcoin Core website of how to verify this download. After that, it starts to become a bit more kind of commonsensical what you're doing. Yeah, and I have to admit, I've never been able to successfully verify software. Um, and I think if if that is just a step too far and that's what's stopping you from running a node, I'd say just run a node anyway yeah, and don't absolutely. verify it. But it is kind of worth thinking about like what if the Bitcoin Core website got compromised, mm. someone changed the the node download and, the, and it changed the rules so that the maximum supply was 100 billion instead of 21 million. You know, that's the kind of, it's one of the few attack vectors in, in, in where um, Bitcoin is in a, in a way centralized. So the more people who do know how to do what you're talking about in terms of verifying software, the, the better it is for the network. Definitely. And it does get easier the more you do it, similar to setting up a node. So I'd say the first few times, even if you just wrote clicking and, and you know copy pasting the different command lines to verify, it's a good place to start. And if you don't want to do that, that's fair enough. I think just being able to set up and run a node is good in and of itself. Just be aware that the uh, you know your your threat model is a little bit different. Then you have an extra attack vector, which means like don't put your life savings on that node unless you've verified it. I do also think verification will become easier in time. PGP is the main way that we verify currently. So again, checking the signature of a file or checking the, the signature of a hash of a file, and then checking the hash ourselves. But there are other methods that are being experimented with that will make it more of a, a user-friendly. Like if you've ever downloaded the Tor browser before, they have a really great option where you download, um, actually it might not be Tor browser, it might be Tails, it might be Tails operating system where you download Tails and then you, through the website, click verify, you locate the file you've just downloaded and it will then verify it against what they have in terms of their keys. Of course, you're now trusting them a little bit more, but if that's a trusted site, uh, it seems like a nice intermediary compared to just not verifying at all. Anyway, watch this space. I think that'll become easier in time. It's probably worth just clarifying. So you, you said don't put your life savings on your node, but I think what, what you really, because obviously the life savings are in your private keys, which is not on your node. So maybe just touch on that. Yeah, true. So probably good to see the wallet as, wallet's a really poor name for it. It's really just like a key store or a signing device because it holds your keys and it constructs transactions and then your node broadcasts the transactions. So even 
if you did put your life savings into a wallet and then connected it to a node that wasn't yours, you wouldn't be able to lose that those funds because you still hold the keys and the node doesn't necessarily hold the keys. However, what would happen is you are trusting whatever node you're connecting it to with uh, things like your IP address, um, the fact that you own those funds um, or future transactions. If you connect to your own node, you don't have that problem. But at the same time, what would the risk be if you're connecting to your own node, but you've done it with an unverified download? Well, again, you're, you're now running a node that has different consensus rules, which means there is a possibility, I don't think for you to lose your Bitcoin, but there's a possibility for you to say, receive transactions from a, a fraudulent party and believe that you have more Bitcoin than what you actually do because you're running a, a node with different yeah, consensus your rules. could be incorrect. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a... It's a small risk, realistically. True. And what you could do is, um, like, for example, compare um, the block number to a block number somewhere else to make sure that it is in sync and that sort of thing. Either way, I think best case scenario is you verify. If you don't verify, you, you could put your whole life savings into a wallet that connects to that node, but you wouldn't want to trust that node 100%. Take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> so should we, speaking of wallets, should we move on to wallets now? Uh, in terms of um, connecting to your node. So yeah. obviously like Bitcoin Core, you know, it was like the original wallet, but it's not really that good these days. And I think it does have hardware wallet capability in the latest version, but I've, I haven't actually tried it. It, it does with a com lots of command lines. So Bitcoin Core is not that great with multi-sig or hardware wallets yet. You have to do quite a customizable process using command line. But in future, they're looking at making that more of a, a GUI, kind of what you see yeah. is what you get type of setup. Yeah, but realistically, there's some pretty pretty good options um, that you can connect to Bitcoin Core and have all that full functionality. Mm. Yeah, so I've actually set up, when I had a Windows node, I set up um, the Ledger software to point to something called Ledger SatStack. So it's an additional piece of software that connects the Ledger wallet to um, Bitcoin Core, mm. which is pretty cool because I think a lot of people would have a Ledger. Um, and that means you can use your Ledger wallet software, which is pretty intuitive, connected to your own node, which I think is it's great that Ledger has um, enabled that feature. Um, it's a good kind of it's a good sign. I mean, there are other wallets that you can connect a ledger to, like Wasabi. Even though we've heard bad things about them lately, you can use um, connect a ledger through that or um, a cold card. And then there's you know quite a few other wallets that uh, enable you to do a similar thing. It, it's probably good to if you're coming at um, what node to run. It is to come at it from the wallet yep. side first to say, okay, well, I want to run this particular wallet. What wallet can this then connect to in terms of nodes? And most nodes are now becoming much more multi-use where it's difficult to find a wallet that won't connect to a particular node. However, it's always good to do that, uh, that planning to begin with. The other thing to look at is what sort of features or functions that you want, which I guess is inherent in choosing a wallet. So if you want, um, say, a Lightning Network capable wallet, you probably wouldn't be connecting to, say, something like a, um, a Ronin Dojo, which is really just for on-chain best to be used with Samurai Wallet, but can also be used with hardware wallets. If you wanted to run something like a Lightning node, the node implementation that you would run would likely be something like a Raspberry Blitz or a Raspberry Bolt, or even we mentioned before, both Citadel and Umbral. If you wanted to run just a basic on-chain uh, node, you could also run something like a Noddle or a MyNode. The, the reason I've, I've chosen these sort of ones to mention is that they're all free open source software. So they have been verified and audited and continually undergo audits from both independent community members as well as adversaries. 
and they are DIY nodes. So if you wanted to do it yourself, you certainly could, but each of these options also has a premium purchased version where you could just buy, say, a node in the box um, where it's more or less plug and play. So that's probably a, a good cross-section of nodes to consider depending on what you want. Have you? Do you have any thoughts about other types of nodes or wallets that we haven't really talked about that yeah, might be worth considering? Um, not so much the wallets, but I'm just thinking the hardware. It's, you may want to plan ahead with the hardware too. So once you do, this is kind of like a gateway drug to like other ways of becoming self-sovereign, for example, like your photos or your data or mm. your you know VPN for your house. So you might realize once you've got a Raspberry Pi at home or an equivalent um, device that actually you want to put some other software on it and then you discover new software. So potentially um, maybe get a Raspberry Pi that has more capability than just Bitcoin Core needs so that you can add other things to it um, because you know you might want to do Pi-hole, which I have set up at home to do network-wide uh, ad blocking. It actually is very efficient on resources, but yeah, once you get it, then you might want to put a lightning node and other things. So yeah, I mean, they, they have a, a certain capability. So just make sure you think about that before you actually buy any devices. I think that's probably just a good point. If anyone's into any hobbies, whatever you think that you need when you initially spec it out, <laughs> yeah. just go like 25% more than that, or maybe even 50% yeah. more than that. Because generally, once you start to tinker and you get into it, you realize that you, you can expand that out. You can be much more self-sovereign than just with your Bitcoin or just with your lightning network. And then having to buy a second device, Look, it's possible. I know a lot of people that run more than one node. Um, having said that, if you don't have to do that, you might as well plan that first, basically. Well, that's probably most of what we needed to get through. Um, again, we've covered what a node is, some of the reasons that you might want to run a node, which is usually around things like privacy, security, and then some convenience. The cost really depends, but you've got plug and play, you've got DIY options. And look, the bar is relatively low in terms of uh, just being able to run it on an old device. So I think it's good to experiment. Um, it's good to spend. We, we never really talked about the time commitment, which is another part. I would say running Bitcoin Core, setting it up and running it should take you no more than a few hours. And I don't even mean a few hours of, of tinkering. Um, well, I guess that's what I do mean, a few hours of tinkering because then it takes a couple of weeks for it to sync itself. But for the most part, like reading through a couple of FAQs or, or clicking through and experimenting, it shouldn't take you more than a, a few hours to get that set up and, and syncing at least. If you were to say run up like a Ronin Dojo or a Raspberry Blitz or something that's standalone on your own DIY device, I'd say set aside a day or two on the weekend, probably more like two days because you've got to deal with the hardware side of things. You normally have to like download an operating system onto the device and then you start to set up the node. And sometimes there can be a bit more command line interface, which can just take a bit of time, um, take a bit of troubleshooting. Look, sometimes it runs without a hitch and you get it done in a couple of hours. But I would say for the most part, if you're doing a DIY option with your own hardware, uh, like a single board computer, give yourself a couple of days. But if it's just a laptop running Bitcoin Core, few hours should be good and i'd say like if you just like if you haven't got a node and you just wanted to start somewhere i think a pruned bitcoin core node on a any computer uh is a great place to start and i don't think that would take a few hours it would be you know i'd say under an hour to just get it going definitely and then just you know monitoring to make sure it's sinking um because i think just starting anywhere is better than not starting yeah um and i think this being able to understand how this software works because this software is what's going to deliver us um, you know, freedom from bank uh, sanctions and that sort of thing. It's mm. very powerful. And I was, I was sort of thinking the other day, like even if you're paying $300 for a Raspberry Pi setup, that's going to replace the global banking system. Yeah. Like that's incredibly cheap. Like it might seem a lot of money just to have this convenience of having a, a private note at home, but that is replacing like all of the banks in the world. Mm. Uh, and it's actually 
amazing that it can do that on such a tiny little device. And see this as an incremental process, same as all things privacy and security. It's very inconvenient and there's normally learning curves. But if you don't see it as the entirety of the process, it can be a bit easier to take that first step. So what I would say is, yeah, just downloading Bitcoin Core, getting that started. If the verification steps seems too clunky, skip it. Either that or, you know, contact me. Um, either at the hard block BTC or my personal mission underscore Bitcoin Twitter. I'm happy to give you some guides to walk you through, but for the most part, you'll find that on the website. Once you've got it up and running, it might just be as simple as that using the Bitcoin Core wallet. But if you then decide, hey, I want to run Sparrow wallet with this or I want to run Spectre wallet with this, that then becomes your, your next side quest is finding out how do you link those two together. It's definitely possible. Um, you'll find those help docs usually in whatever wallet that you're going to use. But if you see all of those steps, it's probably unlikely that you'll try the first one. So I'd say just download Bitcoin yeah. Core, get that running and then, uh, and then decide what do I actually want to use this for? And, and what's, what other wallets seem to be useful to, to connect this with? And then that'll kind of point you in the right direction of, of what else you need to read, who you need to ask. And the more you do that process, the more, the more you understand it, the easier it is to replicate. And then you start talking to other people about it because it becomes a bit contagious. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it, this is all free software. So you can, you know, try a few different wallets. Like some wallets make sense to some people and don't make sense to other people. So you definitely. can download them, try them out. And there's a ton of stuff on YouTube you can follow along. People will do this step by step because, you know, like people who are newer to this, this type of thinking, you know, having someone do it in front of you step by step can be quite helpful. Very true. Yep. One caveat I'll throw in there is it's always best to stick with free open source software when you're talking about your interaction with the rest of the Bitcoin network, as well as keeping tabs on your own wallet and your own keys. You want to make sure that's something that is either from a trustworthy source, but trustworthy sources are only trustworthy until they're not. So you want to make sure it's something that's open source so other people can be looking at it too. I think that's just a good caveat to have in mind and that lowers uh, your potential risks immediately just by taking that approach. But apart from that, if there's any queries, please let us know. Um, if you've tried a node and you want to give some feedback in terms of how it ran or the issues that you had, um, please let us know that too, because that can always inform future podcasts. Any other final points about? No, I think uh, I'll say it again, but just get started somewhere. Definitely. We'll leave it at that. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you found this useful, share it around. If you've got any comments or queries or uh, content suggestions, then please reach out on Twitter. Again, hardblockbtc or one word, hardblockbtc. Thanks again and until next time.